Hello and welcome to this BCA podcast. Today we're going to do a little bit about coming back to caving. Um, lots and lots of cavers already out and about and going underground and we thought it would be a sensible idea to talk about common pitfalls and things to watch out for. On the pod today I have Ethan Thomas, Elaine Oliver and Hannah Bennett and I'm going to let them introduce themselves so we start with Gethin. Yeah so my name is Gethin, I'm a uh, cave instructor certificate holder based up in North Wales um, work for a, an outdoor centre up here and I guess most of my caving was done in South Wales when I lived down in South Wales and thought it was all over when I moved up to North Wales and it didn't quite work out that way as we discovered all the mines and other little squirmy holes that are around here so I've, I've found most of my time is spent in mines now as opposed as opposed to caves um, but there we go it keeps me busy um, I'm a member of the North Wales Cave Rescue Team. I'm a, a, a team leader uh, for the team up here as well. Well, I will um, point uh, our listeners to the Caves of North Wales uh, website, where there are over 70 listed caves and uh, at least five systems over two kilometres long. So there are lots of lovely caves in. And uh, we'll go to Elaine next. Hi, my name's Elaine. I started out caving with Cambridge and I'm now president of the University of Bristol genealogical society which is a good club as well as a mouthful to say um, so I live quite locally so I do most of my caving uh, down on Mendip although there are occasional forays elsewhere if we're craving a little bit of verticality um, and I've been on a few expeditions abroad as well. Oh, wonderfully put and uh, Hannah? Hi I'm Hannah Bennett I've been a caver now for 20 years I originally started with Southampton University Caving Club and was their president and then moved across to the Bristol Exploration Club and various committee roles as hut warden and then caving secretary for many years. And um, I now live in Priddy, centre of the universe, 420 metres from the Hunter's Lodge pub and um, still actively caving. Yeah, I think anyone who has, you know, everyone knows you if they've been to in Earth or the BEC, really. <laughs> you know, it's one of those. Yeah, normally have purple hair, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't really need an introduction. Right. Okay. So, what sort of struggles uh, that you might not think about fitness wise and how not to get caught out by them? Go to Elaine first, just to talk about health struggles and coming back to caving. Yeah. So, in my case, um, I had not long after I started caving, actually. So, I sort of done the university thing and then um, in my final year of university I ended up with a pretty severe spinal fracture um, and I had a long period of recovery where I wasn't doing I wasn't allowed to sit down let alone sort of go caving or anything like that and you know healed up nicely and thought yeah I used to enjoy that caving thing I think I'll I'll take that back up again and just kind of had forgotten almost how to cave I remembered you know I was caving at a particular level thinking I can do these things I know how to do these things I'm confident with this particular route and then just getting back to it and not having been underground and forgotten really how to move underground it just surprised me how difficult that was because I think you can be very fit but not necessarily cave fit and there is a line to draw with that sometimes as when you see it as well if you take people who are not cavers take them underground and they have such a struggle and they could be some of the fittest people you know they could be running up fells every other day and you chuck them in a different environment and they just can't cope so for me it was really sort of 
I had a, a bit of a shocker on one particular trip where I just ended up completely exhausted, dehydrated. If there hadn't been a particular very experienced um, cave rescue member on the trip anyway, who reminds me frequently, know, definitely knows who he is. Um, I think that would have turned into a rescue for me. And so I think it's kind of just being a bit more aware of your limits, um, especially if those limits might have changed over time. And you, you say um, moving around the cave became a little bit difficult. Um, was it any particular surfaces or any particular like climbs or anything like that that was... Actually, for me, now that you mentioned climbs, I used to have no fear on climbs, traverses, anything like that. But because my accident, my particular accident, involved falling from a height onto rock, um, I then became very, very wary to the point where I should, like, I didn't need to be that scared. My boots were grippy enough. I could hold on to things like that. But I just, it became for me a bit of a mental struggle as well. Just being, just sort of to have the confidence that, yes, I can walk across this ledge and I probably won't fall off. But because I've managed to get myself so scared, it was almost making it more likely that I would fall because I was trying to second guess everything. So I think, yeah, building up the confidence slowly when you can and not just leaping in is a big one for me. And what were the sort of steps you took to build that confidence? Well, the first thing I did was go on a caving trip that was far too hard and shouldn't have done it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that then sort of gave me a bit of a kick and sort of... I then thought, okay, now it's, it's time to rein this in. And then just kind of almost went back to basics. It's almost like learning to cave again. Um, and just going and doing trips, like easy, easy, fresher trips, just that I knew I could do and just sort of getting a lot happier and more familiar with those again. And then once that was, that was the case, then starting to build it up, just, yeah. Okay. Swallowing um, my pride a bit and taking it slow. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, that's always a really tricky thing to do, isn't it, when, you, when you're so eager to get back into it. And what would you look for in other people after, now that you sort of struggle? What would you be more wary of looking, looking out for people you're going caving with now? I think for someone, I think a lot of cavers have the mindset of, I can do this, let's just get this done. And I think that's not necessarily always helpful because that's when like they'll not necessarily say if they're feeling tired or struggling. And so for me, I think now I've become a bit more attuned to looking out for when that is happening with other people and sort of sitting people down and force feeding them a Mars bar or some, you know, little things like that. Um, just because having, having done it myself so many times, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, you can, I think it's come easier to spot in others. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember on my first big um, alpine trip many, many years ago, I went uh, on a trip with someone who was very mission orientated. We're going to do this. Um, and it was beyond their capability. And it ended up in a really horrible uh, rescue situation, 900 metres underground. And I was not, <laughs> I was not very happy about that. But I remember getting so cold that I, uh, that I, um, yeah. Just wanted to die. And ever since then, I've been a lot more skeptical about people's confidence <laughs> and their perceived ability. Um, and uh, yeah, other events since actually have made me realise that it's quite easy to fall into that trap. It's not. It's not a personal failing. Right. Open it up to the floor a little bit. Has uh, anything like that ever happened to you, Hannah? Yeah, Friday was a good example of that. <laughs> Oh, so, um, 
Friday I went down to Swildens. I took my son, who's eight, and his best friend, who's almost nine, and my son's girlfriend, who's 11, and, um, and their father. And um, two key things on that, told them we'd be a couple of hours, but the father didn't believe that. So left a call out with the mother, which was a completely wrong time. So when we came out of school, it was bang on two hours. The mother was fretting on the green, having called everybody. Um, so that was, um, should have double checked what he said to the wife, if you know what I mean. And the main key thing, which is um, going along what um, Elaine just said, was um, we all, um, taking children caving, you sort of, sometimes forget that they've got shorter legs or you know don't they, they they their energy levels suddenly drop and um didn't force my son to eat a mars bar when i should have done and then coming back out he basically just went very cold and very slow very quickly and um i should have really forced him to eat when i didn't but um it, it was interesting and entertaining <laughs> but one key what well, actually one key thing was um I thought my fitness was pretty fine because the whole of this last lockdown, I've been trying to do 10,000 steps a day. I've been walking lots, I've been jogging, doing Pilates and all things like that. Climbing back out, the wet way in Swildens, went to go up Albert's eye, the same as I always do with the water coming through that slot. And I slipped off it and fell on the floor and I wrenched my right shoulder and it's still sore. And I thought, how stupid, because I've done that maybe 50, 100 times in the last 20 years. and it, it should have been really easy, but I, my, my, I just don't have the upper body strength because I haven't been caving. I've been doing all the walking and running and jogging and, and all that sort of stuff. But I hadn't really considered that I haven't been doing any weights and I haven't been climbing or doing any of the upper body stuff I normally do. So um, I've completely misjudged my own strength. It was also a slight struggle up the 40. I mean, I got up the 40 fine, but there was a moment when I thought, oh, hang on a second, not quite as strong as I should be. So... I think coming back to caving after a lockdown might be physically fit stamina wise, but might not be fit muscle wise. Um, yeah. Not as strong, not as strong as I um, thought I was. Certainly the, the muscle groups in caving are really quite, really quite different. They're walking yeah. and <laughs> cycling and all of these things that people have been doing to keep fit. Um, yeah. I, I know that I tried the BCA yoga um, last week and I, very fortunate that, that only, there was only one person watching because there was at one point I just put myself <laughs> upside down and just suddenly went oh I feel very lightheaded <laughs> the, the following day was spent going ow oh oh no oh, oh god oh, I really need to go caving soon and yeah, well, one of the odd things I remember when I started um, working uh, in the hospitals, uh, I suddenly started to get back pain. And for life of me, I couldn't work out why it was. And then I went caving and suddenly the back pain went away. It was like, oh God, <laughs> all of my core I get from my caving. So I really need yeah. to make sure that I re exercise my core. But it's interesting to hear that like, for women, it seems to be more upper body sort of stuff that is the struggle. Gethin, do you have any any stories sort of related to like health or coming back to, you don't have to come in. Yeah, no, it's a funny one really, isn't it? So, you know, I deal with novices an awful lot of the time, um, taking novices underground and they, like Elaine was saying about being fit and cave fit, Hannah as well, um, I think that really resonated with me is that um, caving's just brutal, isn't it? 
the, the following day, you just find a whole load of muscle groups that you never knew existed before. And the only way that you can exercise those muscle groups is by going off and doing some caving. Um, and it'll have you. <laughs> you'll, you'll always find a new a new little batch that you never thought you had when you go off and um, and find something that's that's a little bit different, a little bit special. And it's just not underestimating that. Eh? It'll it'll wear you out. Um, but it's it's also like when you move underground, you move in a really different way, don't you? You know, you where you're popping your feet, where you orientate your body in such a way, and and there's just I don't think, um, or I've not come across any any way to exercise and and keep that going. So if you've been if you've been doing your Joe Wicks workouts, great, um, but it's probably not going to help much when you go underground. And we see that quite a lot. So you know we get the um, the PE teachers who are you know built like brick privies and 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 really really up for stuff, um, and. Um, they can be pretty exhausted after not much time underground because it just catches them out really so um yeah just just dial it back a bit i guess eh? um certainly on those first few trips you know get get a few nice easy trips under your belt and don't underestimate how much food and drink it'd be worth taking underground with you because it does make such a difference yeah oh on the on the subject of drink um I, it's always been my suspicion that Mars bars are a wonderful psychological uh, intervention, but actually what most people have a trouble with is uh, dehydration. People are very, very bad at thinking about dehydration. And one of the really good ways, unfortunately, this probably applies to you more if you have a penis, is um, it's a lot easier to sort of cave with a full bladder for longer because your, your opening pressure, this is me going off into anatomy now, which is irrelevant to this podcast, <laughs> um, it just means that you, you don't pee for a longer time. <laughs> but um, I, I always used to, uh, and still do actually, um, uh, make sure that I drink before I go on a caving trip. And it's one of those really simple things. And actually, if you're about to go back into it for the first time, maybe doing that's a sensible idea, as well as bringing along your... Uh, super psychological boosters and that sugar rush that will get you out of the cave and over that horrible, horrible last climb. <laughs> just... right. Yeah, well, yeah. For, for me with that nightmare trip, it was the dehydration that got me. It wasn't the food. I could barely force the Mars bar down, but I was sort of, resort can I just lick the walls? No, you're in Mendip. I don't care. I'll deal with the consequences. <laughs> but I, w I wasn't allowed and they got me out, but... <laughs> One, uh, one useful trick I've found over the years is um, rubbing your temples. And for me, when I'm well hydrated, I know the skin consistency of what my temples feel like. And I know that when I, <laughs> everyone's doing it now, uh, and I know that when I get quite dehydrated, you get a little bit of salt appear over the top of it and you just get a, like a tiny little rustle or the skin doesn't feel quite as bright. And actually, that's what we do when we sort of look at patients at the end of the bed. Um, you look at someone and you go, oh, I reckon you're this percent dehydrated. And you do it on the quality of someone's skin. And it's one of those sort of things that I think in caving, we tend to lump into soft skills. And it's not actually <laughs> really a soft skill is judging how well hydrated someone is. Um, but 
I do find that cavers are normally quite good at it if they've uh, if they've been used to managing other people, getting a feeling for how well hydrated someone is. Anyway, we'll move on to the second bit. So this is um, the real reason I was desperate to get gethered on this podcast. So um, I put it as: what bits of gear should you watch out for, and what should you maybe think about replacing? So. I'll just throw it out to you like that, Gethin, and we'll uh, we'll make sense <laughs> after that. Yeah. So, so this is quite comedy because I didn't realise this was going to be audio only. So you can see a box behind me, which is full oh, of yeah. knackered old kit, <laughs> and uh, I can rattle some kit here as well. Um, uh, so the show and tell is not going to work. Oh dear. <laughs> um, but not that it matters anyway, because it wasn't that exciting. Um, I guess it. So the big, the big one for me would be a light um, is if, if your kit has been sat around for ages, you know, battery technology is amazing nowadays and it does all sorts of things, but they do lose their, uh, they, they, they do discharge and they do um, uh, maybe not last quite as long as, as they might have done 12 months ago. So, so yeah, my, my first suggestion is get your light out, charge it up and then just stick it on and leave it overnight or something and just check it the following day to see if it's still burning or not um and then and your reserve light as well i mean god they're just you know anyone who's lost their light underground who's had an incident underground and and everyone's nodding to it all <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. um yeah, and I, I and i think yeah the number of times that i've like been on my way down a rope or hit a rebelay or something, you know, somewhere where you just really could do without that happening. And back in the days when you had the old FX2s and the light bulbs used to ping, um, it's not very nice. <laughs> and then and then you pull out your knackered old whatever Petzl Tika thing that's been in your pocket for generations <laughs> and find out that actually that light is rubbish um, and, um, and try to find your way out of the cave isn't is now just going to be a thoroughly unpleasant experience so yeah check you know check your check your light and have a have a good old think about what you've got in terms of your reserve light and 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 how that's holding out you know the the batteries just degrade when they're left in their in their units for a while and just have a good look at it and and, and make sure you're happy with it that that would probably be the the main thing for me and then and then it's how have you stored your kit <laughs> And I, I don't know. I, I know a surprisingly large number of people. It will be carbo, and they'll be yeah. far too proud to admit it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it's been just left in that tackle bag in the shed, um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's time to get out and have a good old look at it. And there's only so much that a wire brush can contend with. It might it might be might be time to go shopping. Um, uh, and I guess the other one that I was looking at was just, you know, your, your descenders really, how, how quickly they wear out and how hard it is to recognise that they're worn out kind of these days, especially if, you know, we're quite fortunate in a lot of the centres we work for will we'll have like quite a lot of kit so you can compare old and new and it's really subtle the way that your, your belay devices wear out over time and you might not. You might not appreciate it and if you if you haven't used your bit of kit for a while and you jump out there and you you start heading off down something on some nice thin diameter rope with a, a stop that's seen better days you might be just going that a little bit faster than you'd want <laughs> um, so 
So yeah, just maybe check those bits of kit out and have a have a little play around with them beforehand. But lights, I think, would be the big one for me. Mm. And what about um, sort of uh, fabrics? Because I, I think that I think that'll be my biggest like gremlin on my shoulder. Is I've put my harness in a wet bag for a year. Um, what what on earth do I look for in my fabric fabric harness before I? Put it on and swing out over the abyss. Yeah, so this is a really tricky one. It's a really contentious one because all your kit has got, it will have an expiry date. Your, all yep. your software, so your um, all your fabric, your ropes, your harnesses, they'll have a lifespan. And this is going to vary because manufacturers will come up with different rates. And it's quite surprising. If you look at the lifespan of your harness, I... I would guess that the majority of people are caving on harnesses that have passed their lifespan um, as they've been defined by the manufacturer. Um, but it's debatable about whether that kit does actually, whether time is the factor that weighs the kit out. It's yeah. more often than not, it's way. And so mm -hmm. it's worth taking your harness apart, you know, opening up the buckles, having a little look at it, checking to see if it has worn out. Um, if you have worn it in a, or if you've left it in a, a damp peat and it's got all mouldy and, and grim, um, pop it through the wash, have a good look at it, clean it off first and have a look at it because if it's caked in mud, it's, um, it's going to be pretty hard to assess it. And a lot of the time it's just it's feeling that fabric, you know, has it got any hard um, uh, sections to it or has it, has it worn away to such an extent that... Um, it might be time to to replace it um and i think most of the time with these sort of fabric goods you know you can feel them and you can get a really good understanding of whether it's time to to move it on and get get something new or not um you know if it has worn out if it if it is frayed then it's it's having a look at it they're incredibly strong these but this kit but once it starts to go then you just don't know whether your next trip is going to tip it over the edge. And <laughs> you definitely, you, know, you definitely don't want it to be your next trip. No, not if you're at the bottom of a pitch, really, is it? <laughs> That's not the time. Well, definitely if you're not at the top of the pitch. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I can't, can't tell you how disappointed I've been on various expeditions where um, you've, <laughs> you've cleaned something and realised the extent of the structural mud around the kit. Oh, well, this isn't coming back. <laughs> I, I think that's the big thing, isn't it? Is you can't really check your kit unless it's clean. So you know, give it a give it a good clean. Um, you know, some some warm and uh, warm water is the best sort of thing, really. In it, I got I got to be honest. I chuck a load of my kit in the washing machine. Um, mm. Just um, try not to tell my wife. Um, uh, <laughs> I've got a mate who puts his wellies in the washing machine. There we go. Um, uh, but. But, but yeah, you know, give it a wash in some warm water um, and then see what it looks like afterwards. But hopefully you've hung it up somewhere nice and dry over the, over the whole lockdown and, and not on a metal hook or anything that's going to have corroded and caused some mischief. So it's really worth having a look at those buckles and seeing what, what sort of state the, the harness is in, uh, underneath them. Take them apart a bit. Brilliant. Hannah, what was what was broken out of date <laughs> on your trip trip on Friday? 
nothing on Friday, but um, an anecdote about Kit. When I had my son, I had about five months off in total from caving, and I'd left a Mars bar in the chest pocket of my worn back oversuit. And my kit was all nicely folded away in the garage, and I thought I'd done really good. You know, it was clean and everything, but there was a Mars bar in the chest pocket. When I went to examine it, a mouse had had its nest in the um, in my bag. It had chewed through the bag, all my my furry, my thermals, my warm back, everything, and it had eaten a corner out of the Mars bar packet, and then eaten the whole of the Mars bar on the inside, but left most of the packet intact. And I've I've remembered never ever ever to leave anything in any pocket ever again be it in a garage or a car or anything because <laughs> it will it'll just the rodents will get it but uh, yeah checking kit I, I put my oversuit once through the washing machine and it came back about um three mil thinner and you pretty much see daylight through the arse on it so <laughs> I haven't done that again <laughs> but uh yeah with the SRT kit um interestingly on Friday I always put Anybody who I'm taking caving, I make sure they always wear a belt and they've always got a carabiner on their belt, a screwgate crab. And I always take an HMS on mine and spare bit of rope and everything just in case. And um, I went to get my um, carabiners out from in the garage where I thought they'd been fine and they were all right. And one of my HMSs had blown. It started to delaminate and gone all white and fuzzy. And I wouldn't have thought that would have happened since I last used it probably last September, October. But um, yeah. Um, I was like, ooh, that's a bit grim. Um, probably time to retire that that to be using on a hammock in the garden, not for caving anymore. So it's surprising what items we find just suddenly go um, when you're not expecting it. I've had a belt suddenly go that I thought looked fine, but then the webbing just gave way. And um, had a tackle bag on Expeditions Philippines. Um, it was a friend's tackle bag. It was brand new. He'd had it about 15 years. And had not used it. It had been dry in an understairs cupboard, and he took it to the Philippines. And the first time he used it, the shoulder strap, um, the rucksacky bit, just snapped on it. Um, it never, it never been used, and there wasn't anything wrong with it stitching wise. It's just, just degraded over time. So, I think a lot of kits degraded. Also, yeah, Friday, um, found out that my, one of my Sten batteries doesn't work, my Viper lighter doesn't work, and one of my custom duos is completely knackered even though it's reverse polarity, I, I just can't get it to work. So it's surprising what does degrade over a short amount of time, to be honest. Um, I remember yeah. coming back to caving after a while and sticking my custom duo on and <laughs> <laughs> realising, oh my God, I'm really bad at caving. I'm falling over everything. And it was pretty much exactly what Gavin had said earlier, which was make sure you check your light. Because when I turned on my when I turned on my e-light, which might give away how old I am, because I don't think I've ever seen anyone use an e-light as a backup for about 10 years. Um, <laughs> the e-light was brighter than the custom duo. <laughs> and it just eroded the contacts of the battery. Probably should have recognised that I could see bugger all when I went in, but uh, you, know, you make do and you try and run after people who've already already flown off into the far depths of Camorgan or wherever it is you where wherever it is you're going. <laughs> I, I think backup lights are really important. I never I never considered how important they were until I went down Drynan, not Drynan, Darren, Darren Keyi, and I was in the entrance crawl and I caught my this is going back a bit my FX2 um on on a rock and it pulled the wiring out the side of the um lamp at the front and i had to cave the rest of the entrance call in and out on an on an old q40 um that's how old i am and um 
that was really dim and not very pleasant. But at times like that, you realise the real importance of a secondary light and making sure that you do check the batteries in it regularly, that they haven't corroded on the contacts and it is there if you need it, because I needed it. And um, I've been a bit anal checking it since. So, yeah, it's important. Are you still using the Q40? Yeah, that, my Q40 is still my backup, like 19... I got it, I think, 19 years ago. I got a year into oh, cabling. Yeah. I was so proud. I got it from Hidden Earth. I still use it. So, so your Stenlite is the modern one? Um, I, I actually... <laughs> no, I actually cave now if I prefer it on a rude Nora because the light's better, but um, well, I have a... Lights custom, I have, are available. <laughs> other lights are available. Um, I, do, I do have a Q40. Oh, no, I have a custom duo for Expedition because it runs on A cells, um, double A's. So... Um, yeah, I have a wide range of helmets and lights over the years, but um, yeah, <laughs> it's ever amazing had, what you accumulate. Ever had some equipment surprises, Elaine? Yeah, um, I've had a similar story to Hannah with, a, I used to have, before Phoenixes became trendy, I had one of the ones that had a wired connection as well and um, managed to pop that at the top of the big pitch in Quaking, which was a fun experience. Um, but thankfully, again, I had I had my little tiny backup, so I was able to get back through that horrible narrow bit and back to the surface and just sort of be very glad that that had happened. And then also um, last weekend, similar kind of story, what Gethin was saying about checking your kit, preferably before you're at the cave entrance. Um, we, a couple of, a group of us, um, got there and discovered that our handful of myons, half of them were rusted shut and um, someone's safety cord was not in a fit state to be taken underground. So we had to do a little bit of shuffling there, which would have been perhaps nicer if it hadn't been snowing at the time. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, check it before you go. That's my main tip. I'll bet that just introduces extra faff, doesn't it? No, it's <laughs> worth it, people. It's worth it. Don't, 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 don't not check it because you're afraid of faff. Just, just check it before you pack it and go... Um, <laughs> I think is I think is what what uh, what the advice would be. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on was um, so it was an experience I had down Allen Pot, um, and I think it was fairly soon after having come back from a sort of uh, quite a recent weight gain period. I hadn't really been coming very much, and um, you know, to put it in perspective for some people, it's you're talking about sort of 15% weight gain over over a couple of months which is which is quite quite a lot um, and it shifts your center of balance quite significantly and I remember jumping into my harness the leg loops bit so I was a little bit surprised waist belt needed a little bit of encouragement but you know um, you uh, shift it shift it shift it and it's already fairly out on the maximum anyway for me because um, I am one of those people that's definitely a size two pencil. Um, although I think that was an MTD harness actually. Um, but the, <laughs> I uh, got down the first two pitches, it was the main hanging alum. And the first, well, the first two little bits, your feet are against the wall and you're stood up the whole time. And it's only when I got down to the main hang that I started to descend on my extremely worn simple. As, um, Gethin has advised you to <laughs> check your descenders for wear. Very good point. Uh, when you're hold, holding for, on for dear life with two hands on the down rope, 
I can very much vouch for that. But as soon as I, as soon as the, my feet came away from the wall, I found that I completely pancaked, which um, descending with your ass at the same level as your head is really very uncomfortable. And it's actually quite hard to um, suddenly uh, think about, oh God, what should I do in this situation? And obviously I've had relatively good uh, good people teaching me the way or showing me the way. So instinctively soft lock, hard lock, changed over onto my jammers, went up to the pitcher and um, fannied around with my, with my kit for a while. And I actually never went down the hang, went down the main hang that day because I spent probably about two hours just on various pitch heads going low enough to suddenly become uh, free and just wanted to actually sit where I didn't feel like I was out of control. And I think that's, that's something to be really wary of is that if you have gained weight or if things are a little bit different and you've adjusted, maybe you need to do a little bit of SRT optimization before you jump down an 80 meter pole. Okay, what are your thoughts on that, Kevin? Was I just being an absolute numpty? No, I mean, it's, it's just gonna be so worth going off and having a little play in a tree and a climbing wall somewhere nearby. Um, uh, just to get used to your kit a little bit more, isn't it? It's gonna have been a while. If, you've, if your body shape has changed, Cave-in harnesses are such, you know, that, um, that it'll be pretty unforgiving if you try and jump back into it and, and, and think it will function in the same way. Um, so, and I think one of the things that I would uh, sort of highlight there, it was sort of my own hubris that, oh, it's only, a, you know, <laughs> it's only a main hang in Alum. Uh, to a lot of people that sounds scary, but to an awful lot of people who are a little bit more vertical, you think of, oh, that's a rebelay and one drop and actually one drop is very much like another drop um but actually when it comes down to it and suddenly you don't think your kit's working a big drop becomes a very scary drop and it's all relative to what you're used to um and there's no problem being scared <laughs> there's no no problem sort of admitting when you might have over it or or done something a little bit a little bit too much i've certainly been caught out a couple of times and i think this podcast will make everyone terrified of going caving with me uh, with the number of stories I'm coming out with anyway <laughs> so number three how to set a appropriate call out and what does it feel like to get rescued and I was wondering if we go to Elaine first for this one uh, if you've got a good story yeah so I've got one actually from very early in my caving career um the time was New Year's Day the mood was very hungover but I was really keen to go caving um we were staying up at Beaupark Farm I was really keen to go caving and a couple of others decided that they would go as well but that particular year it was very 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 wet and there were just sort of streams running off the fells horrible horrible weather and so we kind of thought we'll, we'll not go too far let's just stick our noses down Beaupark of the witches that'll be fine someone more knowledgeable than I I was assured said this cave doesn't flood and so down we went and we went through, we looked at the guard chamber, we went and looked at the sump and then we decided that we would come out again and we found our way out blocked by a waterfall through a boulder choke and it was really, really hoofing down. 
so that was it we were we were stuck in the gar chamber and the thing is we'd kind of thought we'll take a relaxed trip we'll probably only be down there for a couple of hours but you know people might be going for walks and things so we'll set our call out for seven o'clock and we'd gone underground at about midday um and so that turned into a very long wait before seven o'clock rolled around and we hadn't been seen um and only then did the uh, did the people start to to sort of think about where we might have got to um i think yeah there's a a bit of a, a maxim in diving um of like plan the dive and dive the plan and i think it carries over well to caving if you know you're only going to be going underground for around two hours maybe set a call out that's around three hours um because i can tell you it's not not a lot of fun waiting in wet and cold for someone to come along and on that note on a very similar note despite me being at that time the least experienced caver, I was the only one that had spare batteries or a Mars bar with me. So I think it's also worth it just no matter how short the trip. Mars bar and a battery don't take up that much space. You can just put them in your breast pocket and off you go and you will be thankful, you'll be thankful for them at one, at one time. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't, can't disagree <laughs> with any of that. Um, uh, I remember being asked to come and train at my old club, uh, Sheffield University, um, one of the new people coming through and we went to Marble Steps um, and lots and lots of rigging, like the beginning, you know, you can supervise someone, see how they're doing. He was, he was, he was doing well, he was a little bit slow, but people learning rigging often are. And, um, only when we got down to the main chamber that I uh, suddenly realised that none of us had a watch on and that we had set quite a tight pull out and that I'd been a bit used to um, uh, South Wales caving where um, you sort of, uh, I don't know, the general general rule was how how far do you, you know, 150%, so what, what you said essentially, time time in times three. Like, how, how far am I planning to go times that time by three? And that's my fallout time. And I felt <laughs> after this that actually the, the way that I'd actually been taught for vertical caving was uh, times four. And the reason for that is time down is a lot shorter than time up. Like, it definitely does take a little bit, a little bit longer to ascend than it does to descend. Um, and so that, that was worth bearing in mind. But yeah, I distinctly remember having some very, very smug students uh, greet me when I got back to the hut saying, oh, good at training, are you? Oh, you? You're very good at setting all of these call outs and everything. After I'd admonished them for, for doing almost exactly the same thing the previous week. So yeah, definitely, definitely had an egg on my face that day. But uh, <laughs> I think it's quite easily done. And I think um, maybe planning for if I was taking someone else caving in this cave, this is what I would expect them to do. And then maybe applying those slightly more generous call out times. You know, uh, what, what call out times do you use, uh, Hannah? Um, rule, rule of thirds, like um, um, you guys were just discussing, um, what, like one hour in, one hour out and an extra hour. 
Yeah. Um, I know some caves people don't realize are quite so vertical, like Swildens is actually quite vertical walking back out of it and people don't necessarily consider that. And also GB, it's not very far distance wise caving, but it's actually quite vertical quite walking back up the main passageway and the two climbs and everything back out. People mm. tend to not consider that. So I might leave a little longer for my going out time than my going in time and then an extra like third. So if it's an, I think it's going to be an hour in, I'd say three hours. Again, it's not much fun sat around waiting for somebody. Uh, luckily I haven't been in that situation, but I know other people who have, but um, I've not actually been underground on a rescue. I've been on the surface on rescues helping, but the most rescues I've had to be on has been to go to a cave entrance to see if the caves have come out yet because they've missed their call out. Um, I, I find more people tend to underestimate how long a trip will take and are a bit gung-ho about it than, than too cautious. So. Yeah, it seems to be about 50% of uh, call-outs, I think, on the Derbyshire statistics. That's a lot. So, yeah, it makes up it makes up a lot. And that's, that's you know, essentially you include animal call-outs. But what, any advice uh, from, from you getting on, on call-outs and, and uh, planning trip times and things? Yeah, I think Elaine's raised a couple of really good good points there. Eh? One is how cold you get if you're static. In caving kit, you know, when, you, when you're thrutching around a place, you get pretty toasty. And then if you stop for a while, you get very, very cold. And um, it, it can get to the stage where you might be walking wounded. It might be able to be assisted out of, out of a cave. So... Um, year before last, I think it was, we, we pulled somebody out of Chrysler to Rossith who'd basically had a bit of a dunking and, um, uh, and you know, he just he had the wrong kit, um, couldn't get up a rope, was too tired, so it had to be hauled out. And he walked out, but he needed a fair bit of help because he'd been there for such a long time, getting so cold and, and just been pretty useless really and unable to help himself so so warm clothing really important you know it's one of the big things that we sort of teach cave of mine leaders is to is to have that warm kit take bothy bags really think about how you can keep people comfortable and warm if if, if they're going to be um if they're going to be underground for a while waiting for help the other thing is that call out time is like i've done it you think I'll, I'll put a call out time at midnight give me plenty of time to um uh, to to sort of do what it is I'm going to go off and do and then and then um, uh, uh, and have a bit of spare time in the bank and you just kind of think well if you hurt yourself in the first 20 minutes of caving you're going to be underground for quite a long time before you get any help and it's going to be a while before people come and help now you know rescue teams are bound by COVID procedures things things are going to be slower um, uh, to get going and, and team members are still got to kit up with the whole sort of PPE and all the rest of it that again slows things down and makes things that little bit more challenging so so it it, it is going to be a while um and, and in think, the main regions they're not they're not going to be hanging out of the huts so they won't be right next to the cave they'll, no, be, they'll that, be at home no exactly and I think some of the comedy things to bear in mind as well it's like I've I've been caught out doing evening trips and then actually getting lost on the hill, finding our um, uh, our way back and um, and having no mobile phone reception. And so being out, legging it, trying to find mobile phone reception to 
let our partners know that we are okay <laughs> and all is well. So just be mindful of those sort of silly little things. Um, and we had a we had a call out here a couple of years ago. Again, it was Chrysler to Rossi, and um, uh, the 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 four guys who were involved they were all absolutely fine. They were in a campsite in Nant where there's no mobile phone reception. Absolutely um, not. <laughs> uh, three of the four of them had told their partners that they were out. Um, uh, the fourth hadn't been able to get in touch with his partner, um, and she raised the alarm and she couldn't get in touch with his mates, partners and all that sort of thing. So it's, it's just like thinking it through over who you're leaving that message with and making sure that you do speak to them, you know, not send them a text message or something like that. Just do actually chat to them and say that you're, you're out and you're off to the pub now and all is well so that you don't end up having a load of people up at two o'clock in the morning and, uh, legging it around the hills trying to trying to trying to find you really it's always a bit embarrassing <laughs> it's why it's always good to leave a model of the car and a reg number and where you plan on parking it <laughs> so that if someone does go to the site and they go oh well the car's not there right okay let's get in let's try and get in touch with everyone because they might just be it, somewhere out of signal it, it is really useful that um so the you know the police are brilliant the police will go and check the car parks for you before you start dragging people out of bed and so um so yeah having your um your vehicle kind of make and an, a number is is really handy um and they'll they even have these clever little cameras now don't they that can spot your um registration plate as you're driving around the place so that that, that can that can help so it's certainly not a bad idea to give an idea of how many people are underground um you know roughly where you're going to go what sort of time you're out what vehicles you got where you're going to park um and if there's anything that that's worth kind of sharing you know if there's any ailments or anything like that with with people in the group that um that's worth um worth sharing if if people did get called out those sorts of heads up are really useful yeah well that's that's really good right so um the fourth thing i've got on my list is how can you help the people you're caving with hopefully we've kind of really sort of touched on that as we've gone through um so i think i'll just go for any any sort of point that you think either needs re-emphasized or or you think we might have missed so if i go to hannah first you mean if you're taking taking somebody caving that you um keep to keep an eye on i'd say yeah. um always watch, out for, always watch out for the quiet person in the group they're normally scared nervous um unsure could be tired low blood sugar um, I think quite often um, people sometimes go a bit gung-ho with caving and go, yeah, let's go, let's go. And there'll be somebody who's not quite sure in the group and um, they need, they're the ones that need looking after and it's normally the quiet ones. Sometimes the talkative ones like me, I talk a lot more when I'm nervous. So you'll find me singing going down pitches in Yorkshire because I get nervous. Not normally um, singing quite some embarrassing songs, cheese, but there you go. Uh, not caving songs, sorry, Rostan. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, but, what, what sort of idiot sings down caves? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think just keep an eye out for each other. If you're getting back to caving after a, a, a break, whatever the break is, pregnancy, operations or lockdown, then it's look after everyone in the group, you know, keep an eye on each other. Um, 
I always take spare baths and a, and a bivy bag and things like that with me. My husband calls me anal, but I've learned from my mistakes on previous trips. So um, I always take in a first aid kit. Um, and I think just, just keep an eye out on each other. You might all think you're having fun when you're at the surface, but then anxiety and niggle, niggling doubts and yeah. bodily health sort of comes into mind. And then, then you get underground and you're not quite as fit or happy as you thought you'd be. So, yeah, keep, keep an eye out on each other, I think. Yeah, I think that's all really good. Elaine? Uh, um, I think for me, because I do, I help out with a lot of student caving, and I think particularly with students, but really with anyone, if you haven't caved with them much before, if you haven't caved them with them in a while, don't necessarily assume that they're as experienced or as confident as they might let on. Um, perhaps, I think, particularly early in the caving career, you can sometimes, you can often think that you're better than you are and that can sort of it can be easy to lose sight of that and and sort of remember that other people might not have the same experience um or that they again as hannah was saying that they they might not let on um if they if they are struggling because they might not, not want to look silly in front of their friends well, i they... look silly all the time so hopefully i'm leading by example on that one <laughs> Or they, they might be really competent at one or two things, but might be sort of glaringly glaring glaring holes in their in their sort of competency. I remember sending a fresher up a bulk climb because he could be a, he was able to bulk climb. I thought, oh gosh, well, that's good. Yeah, of course I'll be lay you and look at that. And he got to the top of it, and I asked him, oh, just you know, tie an alpine and pull through. And he asked me how to tie an alpine. I was like, oh god. <laughs> okay, well. Let's tie the knots you know, <laughs> let's hard rig this and I'll join you at the top and then we'll sort this thing out. So yeah, it's, it's quite easy to get carried away with how swish and confidence on people. Ethan? Yeah, it's just that really, isn't it? Look after your mates, just check each other out, you know, be humble really, isn't it? You know, mm. don't, don't, um, don't be shy asking somebody just to check is that buckle on the back of your harness done up properly and, you know, does your kit fit you properly? Is it all um, in reasonable sort of shape? Um, uh, and um, check each other's rigging. Um, like, how many people just get hung up all the time because rebelays are too short, you know? And it's just those little things. You just sort of just have a little think about it, you know. Try and rig things as friendly as possible for for folk. Um, uh, maybe a little bit more than usual you know don't be a git trying to catch people out by having a deviation show short that they've got to go for some epic swing to go and get it just be that little bit nicer when you're when you're setting things up just just sort of help each other out and keep uh, keep an eye on each other and uh, i you know the food and drink things like we were talking about earlier i think that's if, if people start getting grumpy that's normally a good sign that yeah, sign, had yeah. enough, uh, or had enough to drink and it it That'll be the stuff that you'll forget, won't it? You know, you've been at home with all these sorts of amenities right near you. You're bound to forget your food and drink, um, or or underestimate how much you need when you when you're going about. So, just having a plenty of breaks and getting something down your neck and looking after yourselves. Um, so as we were saying earlier, really, isn't it? Just pick 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 something that's good and fun, but but well within your abilities to get that first sort of trip or two under your belt and then and then go for it. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think really the point is, is that it's just about getting back to caping and you know doing what we all used to do as uh, as frequently as we used to do it, where everyone's gagging to go. Um, I think the one thing that I'd add, add into all of this is remember to check the weather, because <laughs> that was something I was always notoriously poor at, and I know that. Um, you know, there are sort of two parts to this, and it depends how anal you, uh, people like to get. But um, one, uh, you can go on the various um, CDG. <laughs> you know, what's the viz like? What what's the water level like? Because I I've found those quite helpful in the past. Or um, I know my my dear friend Paul Fairman is uh, religiously attuned to river levels <laughs> down by Danarogov. And so I will get graphs sent to me before our trip, which, you know, it always, always inspires confidence if someone sends you a graph. We're going on this trip and we're going now and it's actually going to be the best thing because the water level hasn't been this low on the 17th of May since 2003. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> which, you know, I absolutely love and it's something that I should probably do more. Um, but being, being aware of weather and how, how it catches you on, you know, read your books like be aware of funny catchment areas and funny caves and do do all that sort of stuff um on on that note i guess so a recommended enjoyable fresher trip for the experienced caver who who uh, is wanting wanting to do something new uh, first coming back but a little bit a little bit easy i'll go to go to hannah first uh <laughs> I don't do? know. I would have said. I would have said it's probably a bit boring, but just do some one and back in Swildens, um, in, in Mendip. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but it is slightly vertical, of course, as I've said, and you've just got a very short ladder pitch, so that's a little bit of practice on lifelining and the ladder. Um, nice and easy, um, not too far to get out, um, and I. <laughs> There's, there seems to be a Mendip thing where a lot of people go, oh, it take, you, you should be able to get to the stump in 30 minutes. Um, so um, I, I, the amount of men that have said that to me, oh, it's 30 minutes to the sump or 25 minutes. Um, it's like I, I've known people who've gone, oh, it's 40 minutes through the Darren entrance crawl. And, and any quicker than that, you're just wasting energy. And it, 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 there's phrases like that. So I find if, if you're working on the 30 minutes to sump one, go do, some, do a nice trip to sump one and see how far you are off that. And it might be a good gauge on your ability on other caves, to be perfectly honest. But I, I can't think of anything else on Mendip. That, um, everything else is either a bit harder than that, like Eastwater, or a bit too easy, like Goat Church. I mean, you could go do Goat Church and, and add in the coal chute for a bit of sportingness, I guess. But um, I would say go to someone in Swordens. Nice, steady, see how you get on. And also you need to take a tackle bag for the ladder and lifeline. So um, that would be practice carrying a tackle bag again, which people often forget what it's like to carry a soaking wet rope so yeah. yeah well I'm pleased to say that I think that will be my first trip back um, and even more embarrassingly in the sort of vein of you know that I've never seen Star Wars that sort of oh my god really <laughs> I've never done Swildens I've never been hey. to Swildens no <laughs> so I'm going to be going with, oh with a couple of people for the first time it's like Yep, I've done what seven, eight hundred trips in the UK and abroad. I've never been down Swildon. Um, that's because there are much better caves. But no, <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. 
Right. Uh, if we go to Elaine for a non-Mendit one. Non-Mendit cave. No, because I was going to say I was going to I was going to throw Eastwater into the ring because I think it's really you can you can sort of do a lot of diversions. But uh, a non-Mendip cave, I really like Bullpot of the Witches, despite my experiences that I was telling you about earlier. Um, as long as it's not sort of as long as there's not a waterfall pouring down the entrance, fantastic cave. And it's got I think it's got a lot of everything. You can you can practice climbing, practice free climbing. Um, there are a couple of squeezes there for the those aficionados. Um, there's a little bit of easy SRT as well that can also be free climbs. So it's super easy to rig and then just supervise people. And if they get strung up, you can quite easily get to them and help them. So I think for me, that's a good sort of training and returning to slightly more vertical things. And then if everyone's happy with that, well, you're right next to a lot of the Easegill entrances, so you can just crack on. Yeah, thing, things like Mestral are, are, are great as well, aren't they? Exactly, those, yeah. Those sort of hor horizontal entrances. There's, there's loads you could recommend on Easegill, really. Just go to Easegill. Uh, other, other caves are available. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Gethin, you're welcome to choose uh, a, a fine North Walian vintage or, or Derbyshire or, or South Wales, if you wish. In it, North Wales, you know, you, you've got um, a relatively short list, I think. It's, it's hard to beat poachers, though, in it, in for yeah. the night. Um, poachers is it, wonderful. It's got everything. Um, it, just watch the tides. It sounds bizarre, but the water backs up from the Miller Tunnel um, and then backs up into the hillside. So if it's high tide and you have had a lot of rainfall, that's where you might actually find that the cave is flooding. Yeah, lovely little cave, got a pitch, got a crawling, got mud, got water, you know. Um, but take a ladder and take a harness and life flying up it, you know, just it's those little shortcuts that people just think, oh, it's only a couple of meters. I don't I don't need a lifeline on this one. Just like please do. <laughs> um uh, and uh, and enjoy it. And there's loads of you know, loads of cracking slate mines and various mines around here that you can go and uh, have some good fun on, play around with some ropes and walk around the pitches if um, <laughs> if you find that your SRT skills maybe aren't up to scratch so this, yeah, there's, there's fun to be had around here really. Um, yeah, no, I think that's pretty good. I mean, I think South Wales, basically, almost every cave <laughs> seems to speak for itself. Is as, as a, as a great horizontal trip that you can do as much as you like of <laughs> and then turn around. You know, who, who wants to do half of the Darren entrance crawl and then come back <laughs> when they realised it's a bit too much for them? I mean, I'll, you know, I'll wait to go back to OFD and, you know, run around the top or something like that. And then in Derbyshire, I, I know that an awful lot of my friends who've been going back and sort of starting back have been doing things like Giants or P8. Um, and those those are the sort of classic things that you come back to, mostly horizontal with a sort of poking them out vertical just to just to get to get back in. Uh, Giants Upper Series is a classic as well. And I know that those are access agreements that are open at the moment. And to, <laughs> to take this opportunity to provide everyone to, to check their regional access <laughs> issues just to see if there are are any landowners who've you know, expressed they definitely don't want cavers at this time. Um, there aren't many. Most people are fine with cavers going caving currently, um, but it is worth just checking because we don't want to upset anyone uh, and make sure that we sort of at least be the most responsible outdoor sport as we're coming back. 
But, in, and to end on that sort of paternalistic note, I'd like to thank you all very much because uh, you've been wonderful guests and I think you've had a, quite a few good entertaining stories. <laughs>